Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So before we start on anything, can we have your live review of uh, last night's musical extravaganza, Please Aspects of Love? She well remembered because I had forgotten Aspects of Love. Well... Uh, I went to see Aspects of Love uh, with a great old school friend of mine. And as I said yesterday, she is a fully paid up member of the Michael Ball Appreciation Society. And she's far from alone in that, I should say. And so she'd seen it in the afternoon and then she came again with me in the evening. And I actually asked her because I've always been interested in whether they up their game for the evening performance. Because I know they don't do a matinee every day. But by God, that's that's a hard shift, isn't it? That's a proper working day, that. Tough on the pipes, I'd say. Two of those a day. I would imagine that. But also just the in and out of the costumes and the makeup and everything. Just phenomenal. Makeup on and off. Anyway, she said there was very similar and rather brilliant levels of energy at both performances. And she should know. She saw them both. Absolutely. What I'll say about Aspects of Love, um, and Michael Ball is going to come on the programme in a couple of weeks, um, is that he is brilliant. Um, whatever it is, he has mm, it. In spades. Yeah, he, he absolutely he comes on stage and you are invested in him. And there are a couple of people, more than a couple, I suppose, but there aren't that many in the business of show who've got that quality. Mm. He's also got a fantastic voice. And I have to say, it's in Cracking Nick. So he did Love Changes Everything. I do love that one. <laughs> and it, totally, Is it one of your karaoke numbers? Yes, I actually, I could do it. Uh, and um, it was entirely effortless, seemingly. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I thought he was brilliant. In fact, the whole cast are brilliant. Uh, costumes, great. Choreography, superb. It's slick. It's beautifully designed. But the story is utter crap. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm not the first person to have said it. Um, it's, Jane, have you seen Cats? I mean, uh, no, I haven't. musicals are not known for necessarily, you know, the book, the narrative. No, but I think this is based on a, a book that wasn't thought to be much good. Uh, and uh, it's, I mean, you can't, I mean, I like to see people performing, you know, I, and I, mm. I actually really like a musical. I'm not oh, in, no, absolutely. in any no way snobbery. snooty about them. Oh, I no. think they're great. And there's a lot to admire here, but the story is just really weird and actually doesn't, translate terrifically well mm. into the 20th, 21st century. I do think that there is that thing about musicals that perhaps they can be a little bit anachronistic. I mean, My mm. Fair Lady now is just seems like abusive. Yes. Well, there's a bizarre scene in Aspects of Love where a bloke attempts to shoot a woman and then within about three minutes, the character played by Michael Ball believes the two of them should be together. Mm. Takes himself out of the picture mm. and allows... The bloke who's just tried to shoot the woman and the woman to go off together. Yeah, that but, seems like sort of violent cattle trading. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't think you should necessarily be forced to spend the rest of your days with someone who's just tried to, to shoot kill you. you. No, um, it could be seen as coercive. Yeah, I, I'm not happy with the. <laughs> and also, it starts with a bloke just turning up uh, with a bouquet of flowers at a theatre, and basically carting the leading actress 
away with him <laughs> because he says he really loves her and she just thinks, oh, well, I've got a quiet weekend. I'll, I'll go off with him to his house in the country. Does that happen sometimes when you leave this building? Well, not as outside often as, with it, flowers, as, often as it should. Whisk you off. Uh, and then also because it's a musical, there are bizarre lines like, I'd love a cup of tea. <laughs> Have you got one? Make one now. You know, it went, uh, which you wouldn't... You don't necessarily sing. Life no. isn't like that. No. I like a musical where you have dialogue and then... And then a song and dance routine. With a certain amount of warning burst yeah. into song. Yeah. But it was all over the place in this. <laughs> Should we start cancelling musicals? Should we make a list? <laughs> no, I, just, I do think... I mean, I, I know the reviews have said, gosh, everyone's putting a shift in here. Um, superb work by everybody. Yeah. But the story... Mm. So, uh, but some people still say it's their favourite musical. I don't know. I really don't. What is your favourite musical? Uh, Blood Brothers. Oh, is it? Yeah, mm. which I have seen, I think, seven or eight times. Mm. And it's actually not on at the moment, but I'm sure it will. It will be somewhere. Surely it probably is somewhere. somewhere. Yeah. Um, Tell Me It's Not True, which oh, is the final song. song from Blood Brothers, is and also other great songs in, in Blood Brothers. So that, without question, is my favourite. Yeah. So um, I've talked to, I've interviewed Willie Russell actually about educating Rita oh. and mentioned Blood Brothers to him. He is the same, it's the same yeah, guy, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, no, I'm a big fan. Um, you didn't ask, but mine is Evita. What's yours? <laughs> so I'll, I'll, you, you're right. To point I'm, being, out. I'm playing your role. Yeah, no, I know. Um, yeah, you, yeah, and also playing Fee's role. And she's back on Monday. Uh, and we'll find out all about how she got on on the weakest link. And and uh, Fee's Fitness boot camp video. Yeah, and her boot camp video. So <laughs> plenty to anticipate. Um, is the elephant in the room Hugh Edwards? I don't know. I suppose he is a bit, isn't he? Uh, yeah. Should we quickly well, touch on d- it? Yes. Well, I mean, I, uh, I think everyone's got a view, haven't they? First mm. of all, it's not for any of the rest of us to judge somebody else's inner turmoil. That much we all know. Absolutely. Um, I have to say things were reaching a ridiculous near farcical level until the announcement last night. You did say, as we were leaving the studio yesterday, that it was a boil that probably needed to be lanced, just in terms of the story. Yes. The story, you know, it was sort of reaching, uh, as you say, ridiculous levels. Everyone in the country knew who this person was and who the rumour was about. And then about 16 minutes later, that boil was lanced on live on the Six O'Clock News. It was quite dramatic, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, it was quite dramatic. And I'm glad that it's been done uh, for the sake of other people who were being completely wrongly associated with something and also um the man clearly needs help and i very much hope he gets it and we are in an age where um we're allowed to be a bit more open about mental health and about the incredible pressure that some people are under and some people put themselves under Mm. um i do think i i refuse to think of uh journalism as necessarily one of the most stressful professions partly because um you know i have enough enough um what was i going to say enough connections in the real world Mm. to know that journalism isn't the toughest thing you can do for a living by some margin Uh, and i know that having loads of money doesn't stop you from depression no i absolutely get that um but it's it's interesting that today's guest on the podcast is a, a woman who was playing a part in the evacuation of of Kabul. So it's when you hear about things like that, which people like you, Edwards, will have reported on, they're properly putting themselves out there. Mm. And even the most accomplished news reporter is on the whole 
not, I know I'm not talking about war reporters here, but on the whole, not risking their, their life. No. Uh, but I suppose no. I've just got that in my head that, you know, we have this particular guest yeah. on this podcast. No, absolutely. And I, I will say that um, I think um, you know, whoever has talked previously about his depression yeah. and about his mental health um, challenges. Um, and it's awful to think of anyone, you know, going through what seemingly is, you know, currently mm. a very severe mental health crisis. And uh, at that, you know, that's the worst kind of time to deal with any kind of you know public issue mm. um and and i do think it was good of his wife and right of his wife to say right now you know they're, they're not making any statements they're not going to talk about no. this the no, most no, important thing they. is that he gets better yeah um and i think you know i think that's absolutely right i think that anyone facing any crisis in their personal life and, and this is a difficult thing i think for people in our business anyone facing anything difficult in their personal life the last thing you want to do is talk to the press mm. Um, even, you know, if you are, even if you are the press even if you are the press yeah um, yes it's um, god I mean we've had a whole week of in a way journalism gazing at its own navel yeah and I'm quite bored of that as disappearing well disappearing up its own yeah you know what so anyway um, thank you for the people who have emailed about it mm. um, and I know some people are saying um, that they've, they're slightly conflicted and I get that I probably don't think we should read them out just because no. it just feels to me like it's just not quite fair. And we don't have all the information. We only have no. a very small fraction of the information. Mm. Um, and I think it would be dangerous to pontificate on yeah. the tiny amount that we know. I do think as well, people people have actually said to me, well, he seemed all right when he was doing the news and doing that. And you think, <laughs> yeah, but um, most of us, uh, whatever you do for a living, we have a game face mm -hmm. that we put on at, at work. And every job is a kind of performance. I mean, I think of teachers, for example. Absolutely. Um, it's got to be, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, As the daughter of two teachers, I know they definitely put their game face on. Yeah. They're absolutely horrible when they got home. <laughs> they weren't mum and dad. My mum's been listening the last few days, so I need to be nice. Coming soon. Jane's <laughs> Misery Memoir. What will you call it? Oh, gosh, what would I call it? I know what I'd call mine, because my mum was always very fastidious with sweets, and she'd never let me have a full bag of revels. So I'll, I'll call my misery memoir. I never had a full bag of revels. Oh. Mine would probably be called Play On because um, my dad, as a sports coach, had no sympathy whatsoever when I broke fingers or there's a famous story of him dragging me through some cut cornfields when I was three and had little short wellies on and cut all my legs. But he just did, he refused to notice. Gosh. Or it would also be called It's a Walk, Not a Carry. It's a walk, not a carry. <laughs> Which was okay. um, a motto. Because <laughs> you liked to pick up, did you, when you were out for a walk? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, well, it is a bit nicer than walking. It's a walk, not a carry. <laughs> yeah. <God. laughs> okay, well, there's two possible titles there. Uh, I'm sure there are many publishers listening who think I would very much hear, like to hear more about these women's childhoods. Please send us the advance and please, we'll get to work. Please, please. Right, um, what have you got? Um, so, uh, dear Jane and Fee and Jane, mm -hmm. I've often considered writing to you in response to many of your meaningful and serious topics, only to wimp out. However, I've finally had the confidence to contribute to the hard-hitting topic of penny farthings. Excellent. <laughs> so, um, Louise, I don't think she'll mind me using her name. She says she used to work in a lovely country pub in deepest Dorset um, in Shapwick, which sits on a popular cycling route. And she says she regularly saw groups of lycra-clad middle-aged men whizzing past in groups. I believe they're called mammals, she says. <laughs> However, there was also a chap who often sauntered past on his penny farthing. 
What's more, it had a metal pig with wings on the side of it. Oh, but it, well, of course well, it, it did. Got, obviously. Um, which meant that from time to time, within the pub, all I saw was the, through the small cottagey windows was a pig flying past from time to time. Um, I hope this is a useful contribution to hashtag Penny Farthing Watch. Keep up the good work. Now, I just want to say, Louise, you did work in a pub. Yes. Are you entirely sure about the pig aspect mm. of this? Yeah, I mean, what well, by you? What was it you said you had first thing this morning? A bourbon ball. Yeah. Yeah. Which is? Well, not advisable at 11am on a Thursday on an empty stomach. Work I on... just can't. I've got weak will. Yeah, just work on yourself. Yeah, thanks. Uh, there's another penny farthing sighting here. Uh, <laughs> this is... Oh, who knew this would be such fertile territory? This is Paula. <laughs> Hello, Paula. My daughter and I were wandering through Hyde Park, London's Hyde Park on Friday, on our way to see Billy Joel. I'm actually very envious of that. I, I don't think I knew he was on. If I'd known, I'd have made an effort because apparently it was brilliant and it's only when you read a review you realise how many fabulous songs that bloke's got and apparently he just doesn't... He just does his bangers. Oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's not yeah. shy of no. just giving the people what they want. Yeah, but I think that's great. Yeah. Anyway, on our way to see Billy Joel, and we were absolutely overcome with excitement to see a penny farthing coming towards us. This in itself would not have been email worthy were it not for the fact it was written by a female and I heard you saying that you weren't sure if women did indeed ride them. Keep up the good work, says Paula. Paula, you keep up your good work too. Yeah, thank you very much spot. for that. Yeah, very good. Um, if spot. there's a Lady Penny Farthing Association out there, perhaps you'd like to get in touch. The Lady Penny Farthing <laughs> Club of Great Britain probably does exist. For sure. Um, this is quite an interesting one from a listener who says, I enjoyed your interview with the author Catherine Faulkner. It's reassuring that we as mothers all go through the same at the school gates and a tiny bit depressing at the same time that we're still making Tudor houses for our kids. In my kids' primary school years, I set up a Facebook group called Swap, Share, Borrow, but mm. specifically to share resources for the book days, dressing up days, school projects, etc. The main rule is that no money changes hands. What started off as a group of about 20 mums at our school has now grown into a group of over a 1,000 members, and I'm really proud. You should be. Um, also on a note of the Catherine Faulkner interview... Yeah. Um, and our discussion thereof yesterday. Um, this listener, Diane, says uh, she loved the conversation and that we articulated her thoughts about the various friendship groups you make through your children. And she agrees with the idea of them being colleagues on the front line of whatever stage of childhood we're facing together. She says, you'll be close to some, you'll tolerate others, and some will drift away as you no longer are in the same place at the same time. But a few will remain friends for longer as you develop a real bond. Mm -hmm. She says, this has been a really helpful realignment and has helped with some of the fears I had about cliques at the school gates. When someone is about to have a baby and asks me for my advice, I offer this and also the pearl shared with me by a former actual colleague, be interchangeable with your co-parent. She says, my kids are now 10 and 12 and those nuggets have had the biggest positive impact on my parental sanity and my well-being. Excellent. Wise words. I don't know why I said excellent in that funny way. That does that does sound really good advice. Be interchangeable with your partner. Does well, I think she means, you know, don't don't do any more, do the same. You well, both also, do the same. you know, if you can go yeah. to the mother's meeting, even though you're a so dad. So they can, yeah. yeah. Of course, it could be two chaps or two of ladies. Course. Yes, uh, but that's probably very sound advice. I have found the email I wanted to find oh, yes. about aspects of love. Uh, it's from a listener in Brisbane. As a young Aussie working in London through the 70s, I loved being able to go to all the fabulous musical theatre. So my first trip back to London in December 1989, friends arranged for me to see two new musicals, Miss Saigon and Aspects of Love. 
I've been out for a very long lunch, (laughs) very long lunch in London with former colleagues and had to race to get to the theatre before Aspect started. That's a very long lunch. Good work. I mean, it's half seven, so you started lunch. Well, anyway. my journalist? Well, could easily work in this building. My male companion was much displeased with my lateness and my rather (laughs) relaxed behaviour. We took our seats, the lights went out, and Michael Ball stepped on stage to sing Love Changes Everything. At which point I burst into tears and <laughs> cried throughout the entire play, reaching a crescendo of sobbing by the end. Since then, it has always been my favourite bit of musical theatre. Uh, that's from a listener called Madonna in Brisbane. And Madonna says that she can't wait to hear the interview with Sir Michael of Ball. Well, I haven't, neither. I haven't got a date for it yet, actually. I think it's going to be next week or the week after. Excellent. So it's going to be very exciting. Um, I want. I wonder, actually, um, just talking about audiences, whether your friend noticed there was any difference in the demographic between the matinee and the evening performance. Because as someone who used to be a freelance journalist and sometimes had to go to matinees mm-hmm. for work, um, it's. I would say, in my experience, yes. it's quite a different demographic I in the afternoon. What, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have popped up from St Albans. <laughs> Which is something that it sounds like a euphemism, and uh, it isn't. It's it's that you do get. I know what my colleague here is hinting at. You do get slightly older folk uh, coming up to town for the matinee. But then I can see their point. You're back home for your tea. Exactly. Uh, you don't have to worry about the dark. Or an early bed special just after. Yeah, that's yeah, very important. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, this is a message that I don't think we've talked about this topic this week since I've been sitting in, but I've heard you and. Fee talk about mm. it many times about people who've been to stands. Oh yes, yeah, yeah I like this. Yeah. Um, so this is from Louisa. Hello, Louisa. Um, she has also been tempted to write in many times as she's grappled with the daily ups and downs of life. Um, but now she's finally emailed because she's been to a stan, Kazakhstan, which is south of Kazakhstan. In oh. case that's helpful, and also sounds quite similar. And I'm quite glad I managed to get those say, both out. I'm just, not going to say them again because oh, I think I did well once, and did, I don't want to yeah. risk it. She says it's not somewhere she thought she was going to visit in July 2022, but post pandemic, keen to go anywhere. She signed up for a 10 day botanical tour to this amazing country, which she says is mainly glacial mountains and valleys. It sounds amazing. She says it supports an enormous array of plants which thrive in really diverse habitats and weather extremes. So it goes down to minus 45 in winter Mm. and highs of 30 in summer. So many of what we consider garden plants that just grow here in the wild Mm. um she says it's a really interesting country because of its complex i could say the country but i can't say complex as a former bbc news reader i'm here to tell you it's those little words (laughs) that trip you up um complex history and there was a definite evidence she says of its soviet past russian is still spoken by many in the capital bishkek um, she said she'd forgotten the thrill of travelling, albeit with expert guides, and the joy of learning about other cultures through human contact, which one just doesn't get from a Mediterranean villa holiday or an Instagram post. How interesting. Mm. I, I had hoped to hear more about the stands, and now we have done. Thank you. And I'd also love, over the course of the weekend, um, if you can bear it in the heat, if you are in one of those heat waves, either across Europe or I think America is really going to get it mm. next week. Um, it would be really interesting just to get your take on the challenge of daily life because it, it does sound from our perspective here in cloudy, quite wet Britain. Um, but actually, I'm not complaining because 
it's bliss, relatively speaking. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, when yeah. you have to go on the Victoria line when it's anything above about 28 outside, mm. we struggle. Well, as you know, I go home in a horse and carriage and um, <laughs> the staff do struggle in the heat. I'm getting a penny farthing for when the weather cheers up. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll pay money to see that. Uh, emails They're great to... for people who are five foot four. <laughs> yes, well, don't boast about your height, please. It's a sore subject here. Uh, Jane and Fee at times.radio, so get your emails in uh, for Fee when she gets back on Monday. Our guest today um, is... It's so worth hearing uh, this point of view from somebody who was there... Um, um, for the British airlift from Kabul in the August of 2021 as the Taliban took Afghanistan again. Um, this is part of a three-part Channel 4 documentary series called Evacuation. If you haven't seen it, I, I know I've banged on about it, but it's just brilliant. It's on all four now. And these three documentaries really do show the real raw courage and the honesty of the British service people who had to do a pretty much impossible job. And one of the most interesting of the contributors is Diana Bird, an RAF squadron leader and whose actual role is aviation security expert. And she told me what it was like getting the call about a potential trip to Kabul. It's a hypothetical, very hypothetical conversation um, in June, sort of the middle of June, we were at- 2021. Uh, 2021, so I mean, we were watching the news. We knew something was coming. Uh, and if the Air Force was used, we knew we'd be going because that's our job. And um, actually, I had a new group of staff who had just come from the RF Police School down in Portsmouth. And uh, we had decided it was probably a good idea to give them a bit more practice of being uncomfortable and living out of a bag, basically. So we'd taken them to, to a small training area and put them, sort of put them in a wood and told them to, to crack on. And uh, about a day into it, whilst sort of saying, we've got some deployable kit for setting off an airport. We should probably bring that with us and see if we can, you know, remember how to put it together. And it was while we were doing that that I got the phone call saying, hypothetically speaking, if you were to go to an unknown location to pick up an unknown number of people with an unknown threat, unknown period of time, how many people do you want? And of course, the answer is that's unknown. Yeah, but you did know what they were referring to. We did, and and it is so we have some standing things. So we are we have a standing commitment to um, support hurricane relief and natural disasters, um, but it's not hurricane season in the middle of June. So yeah, we had a we had a pretty good idea, and and it was that that I planned to. And by this time, you'd had quite a bit of experience. What what is your mindset when you get a phone call like that? Is there excitement, anticipation? What is it? If I'm being really honest, I didn't expect to go myself. So for what the initial sort of foreign office plan was, there was no requirement for me. There was a requirement to send my troops. Um, so it was a bit like, okay, what do I need to do to get, to get the troops ready to go? Um, but it very, very quickly became obvious that we probably needed to do a contingency plan for the worst case. And the worst case would need people with, with a lot of experience. I've been to Afghanistan before, I've been to Iraq. I actually left my basic training and went straight to Northern Ireland. So, you know, I, I've, I've been doing this a long time and, and my sort of boss was like, we want to send you and we want to send you as part of that advance party so that just in case you can advise the Foreign Office on, on how to do it anyway on the civilian side, if, if that's what we end up doing. But actually, can you go and just make sure we know what we're doing? One of the most poignant moments in evacuation, actually, is when you say that you felt at times like you were taking, I think you said a sixth form field trip yeah. to Kabul. And I have to say, it really struck me because some of the lads, they were lads, I'm not being patronizing. We are talking about, talk about 19 year olds, aren't yes. we? Yeah, 19, 20 year olds. I think one of the challenges that 
that this country has, because we don't have conscription or anything, is most of the public, all they know about war is what they see on the TV. And of course, on TV and films, on, you know, etc. Soldiers are old. They're in their 30s or in their 40s or even in their 50s. I mean, by military standards, I'm ancient. I mean, I really am decrepit. And How old are you, Jack? I'm 43. Right. Um, but, but I really am. You know, people have short careers. And actually, wars are fought by 19, 20, 21 year olds. Uh, and the average age of my team out there was 23, which is about right, actually. But as, as the boss, as their commander, as their squadron commander, it's a huge responsibility because they, they are 20, 20 year olds and they do think they know everything. And they did sit there before we left like this, going, yeah, 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 okay. As I sort of told them they'd need to take a roll mat and probably, you know, they wouldn't have a bed and, and, and they needed to take some rations with them. And they're like, yeah, all right, boss, yeah, yeah, we know. We've been there before. But they hadn't. But they hadn't. And, uh, and that's my job is to ensure that they do take their roll mats and a sleeping bag and, you know, everything that they actually need instead of what they think they need. What is your, you say you have a definite duty towards them. It's not maternal exactly or paternal. It's, but it's a, a dedication to them. It, what, what is it? Yeah, it, it's a huge commitment. To yeah. So it, it isn't maternal, paternal. They're, they're employees at the end sure, of the day. Yeah. But it's actually, it's something slightly different. So it's... It's a very, very tight bond that is forged through adversity, mm. um, which means that I saw one of them last week, came down to have a chat because things weren't going great. Um, I was speaking to another one on the phone last night. You, know, you, you, you have that bond and you feel responsible for them and you can't switch that off because ultimately we put them in those positions and, and therefore it's our job to look after them. So those young men who did sit back and roll their eyes when you were issuing them instructions, what what are they like now, broadly speaking? Well, they, first of all, they've grown up. Um, yeah, men and women. Um, it was a 50-50 split that we took. Um, and, and they grew up very, very quickly. Um, you do. I did. Yeah, yeah. You, that, that first time some, somebody's trying to kill you is, is quite grounding and does, does make you do that. Um, they're okay, generally. Most of them are, are absolutely fine. Some of them better than others. But the best support there is for them is each other. And they are, as a group, when, when we showed the documentary uh, to them the week, two weeks before it was um, broadcast, you could see how close they still are. And, and they sort of, you know, there's almost this, this sort of unspoken bond between them and, and they really do look after each other. And for those that need a bit of extra help, again, the Air Force is set up for that and is really good at dealing with it. So Let's it, get back then, sorry, Diana, no. to, to the mission itself. You, you get to Kabul and your aim was... To do what exactly? So initially the aim was just to understand the situation on the ground. So we were getting two very different sets of reports, sort of one, um, the formal sort of intelligence type side of the house, and, and then the other, what we were seeing on TV. So it's like, okay, we, we knew a lot of people who worked at the airport, an awful lot of the contractors there were ex-war levels, some of them ex-RAF police. So it's about sitting and talking to them and actually understanding and, and and looking at the situation, again, having, having worked with the Afghan security forces myself, I kind of understood what, when we talked to them, what, what they were really saying. And there was a really good indicator that things weren't going quite as, as was being reported. Well, that's a, can I say that's a very military way of putting it. I mean, basically, the Taliban were proceeding at pace to take the country again. Yeah, they were. And basically, we got it wrong. We'd miscalculated. Yeah, we had. Um, but it was blindingly obvious on the ground that we had although there was a huge amount of denial in Kabul itself. So in Kabul itself, with one hand, 
the, the sort of the people we were talking to who worked at the airport, etc., say, no, 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 the Taliban, have, they've done a deal, they're not going to enter the city, there's going to be an order transition over a period of time, it's going to be different, it's, that, that's not going to happen. But at the same time, as, as I stood sort of looking out across Kabul city, because it's this sort of dust bowl yeah. sort of surrounded by mountains, or you could see all these tiny little fires as all of the government buildings burnt their records. Well, those two things don't add up. And actually, actions speak much, much louder than words. So if they're burning their records, then they're not staying, they're not standing. And how many people did you think you were going to have to try to evacuate? So we were told that they didn't really know, but somewhere between three and 5,000. And who are these people or were these people? So predominantly British passport holders, and actually the majority that we evacuated were British passport holders. Predominantly British passport holders, but also um, Afghan national, certain members of the Afghan National Security Forces, and then um, our interpreters, the, the ones that we really cared about the most, yeah. those that had worked with us for 20 years um, in, in sort of Helmand and my case, Kandahar. And how many people in the end were you able to bring out? Just over 15,000. So three times as Yeah, five times three, and we'd have got it right, yeah. Yeah, wow, okay. Uh, that really should concentrate the mind. Mm. Um, so you arrive, uh, the scene, you've described it already approaching a certain amount of chaos, denial. Did you tell the people back in Britain that there was, frankly, a diabolical situation on the ground? Well, there was still calm at this point. So it, it, it was actually still very, very calm on the ground. Um, there wasn't any panic at this point. That came, that came later. But y y there is a formal change. So we had a joint task force headquarters there who were doing their bit, the, the formal bit. But I was absolutely speaking to, um, to my deputies, the, 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 sort of the junior officers that were going to come out with the troops and my headquarters and saying, well, if it's that worst case scenario, that's what I'm going to need and make sure that they're ready. Make sure, essentially, well, I think one of the conversations was literally make sure they bring their ammo in their hand luggage. So what day did the proverbial really hit the fan? So it happened overnight. It was... Um, it was very calm, um, and, it, the, and overnight the British Embassy closed in utmost secrecy, as did the American Embassy. And we, we sort of did that, great, got those away. And then uh, the next morning, Kabul woke to the news that the President was going to make a speech. But he was actually, he, he made a speech that said he was going to make a speech the next day. Okay. So, okay, right, well, that tells you quite a lot, doesn't it? Um, he never made that speech because he'd already fled. Um, and by that point, the Taliban were at the gate, but still saying they were going to hold, still saying they weren't going to enter the city. Of course, the Taliban isn't an army as, as our army is. Mm. It's lots of little groups and, and lots of little control groups that you're trying to control, and, and that, that didn't work, and they did enter the city. And, and the moment people realised that the British Embassy and the American Embassy had closed, all the other embassies closed. And at that point, all bets were off. Luckily, that coincided with the same day that, that our troops all arrived and the paras arrived, so... Fortuitously, they, those two things happened on the same day. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I've been talking to RAF squadron leader Diana Bird, one of the British service people involved in the attempt to get British passport holders out of Kabul as the Taliban took Afghanistan. Now, anyone who had a British passport was quite simply told, get yourself to the Baron Hotel. But far, far too many people turned up. The roads of Kabul were completely clogged and everywhere you looked, there was total chaos. Situations. I mean, you, we talk about the Brits being leaders of the world type thing and people following what the Brits do. And I, I sort of half, half believed it. I, I saw it in action in Kabul. So first of all, on, on the air station, on, on the base itself, there, there was absolute chaos. There's lots of people, lots of contracts that were collapsed in and, and needed to be flown out. And um, I turned to sort of an American colonel and, and a Turkish colonel and sort of said, sirs, what are we going to do? And they... So the Americans said, well, it's, it's not my orders, I've, I'm evacuating Americans, not my problem. And the Turk just said, I don't know, what are you going to do? And that, that was happening on base. And, and we did take a number of the leadership roles on base, sort of the coordination roles, etc. And at the Baron Hotel, other nations were beginning to arrive and sort of say, so you've got a plan, can we piggyback on yours? So what you ended up with is it wasn't just Brits going through the Baron. We provided the security and the Paris did an incredible job of keeping that safe to allow an awful lot of nations, in fact, nearly every other nation apart from the Americans, to do their evacuations through the Baron as well. Just for, for the purposes of, of listeners who might be, and viewers might be a bit baffled, who are these British passport holders, apart from the people who'd worked for the British Army's interpreters, and I get why you're so passionate about helping them and their families. The others, I mean, there's a reference in evacuation to people who actually had popped to Kabul for a wedding. Yeah, we saw that a lot. So I was amazed. Um, there were contractors. So the whole of Afghanistan, really, the infrastructure was run, run by Western contractors right. as part of the sort of the NATO mission. Yeah. And so and, and they had all stayed and were all adamant they were going to stay. But the moment the embassies went and, and the Taliban took over, they then quite rightly re, you know, realised it was time to leave. Um, in fact, they were told to go. So we had British passport holders of that description. We also had an awful lot of people, because it was the summer holiday, going to visit family. So I was amazed at the number of, of family groups who had popped back for a wedding, gone over for two weeks in their annual summer two-week holiday, um, who had not listened to the embassy advice right, of yeah. do not travel. And I think if there's one thing that I've learned from all of this, it's if the embassy says, don't go somewhere, don't go. Yeah, so I, I'm actually amazed by how equitable and reasonable you are about that. It would have driven me, I think, to distraction if I'd known that people had deliberately put themselves in that position. Yeah, but they're British passport holders at the end of the day. Okay, and, yeah. and they needed help. And that, that's what we're there to do. We're just very lucky to be British and to have a government that will come and pick us up because not every government did. So the decision making that you had to do and that some of these very young people had to do as well, 
there's a point in evacuation where somebody says that effectively British foreign policy, um, with all its complications and nuance, actually drilled down to a teenage soldier making a decision in a split second about whether or not somebody was allowed to get on a plane. It was incredibly challenging. Um, we had a slightly different situation inside the airport. So initially everybody was coming straight to us because it took, it took the Baron Hotel a, a bit of time to set up. So we were dealing with all, all of those people and it, yeah, it, it was pretty full on for sort of three or four days. Then the numbers cut down to a trickle really. So you're looking at probably making 20 to 30 days decisions a day instead of two to 300. But it's still really challenging. And I was very conscious that you shouldn't put those, those decisions onto a 19 year old. So we put in place uh, a system of, of elevation essentially where if from a technical perspective you weren't confident to make a decision or just morally you, you couldn't, you escalated that. Um, and um, I had an incredible Sergeant Major from, from the Royal Logistics Corps with me as well. And between, sort of, between the two of us, we, we made those decisions in, instead, of, instead of the troops. And I know that there are some of those decisions that you had to make that you still think about. Yeah, a lot of them, yeah. Can you talk about just a, some of the examples? What about the, I think there were four young women who came to you, weren't there? So it was actually quite a big group of women. Um, yeah, so the movers, sorry, so one, a soldier came and found me and, and sort of some mom we need you to come down to the gate. And there was a, a crash gate just by where we'd sort of set up our, essentially our own passenger terminal. And um, it we had a load of people outside it and they were a group of very well-educated women, very well-educated and um, you know, fluent English, quite young, and they were all single. And they had letters from the Taliban that basically said, we know who you are, we know you're single and we're gonna come and get you. Um, sort of standby essentially and they were they were desperate for help um, but first of all they were on the wrong side of the gate if they'd been on the other side of the gate I, I don't well the, the UK still wouldn't have helped them they weren't eligible to come to the UK but we had sort of a lot of agreements yeah I understood what other nations could offer could offer yeah. and it and we sort of did do a bit of like oh well I can't help you but but this nation may be able to but they're on the wrong side of the gate and unfortunately if we'd opened that gate, we risked the airfield getting overrun again. And if the airfield got overrun again, we'd have lost one, two days of the evacuation, which was eight, 9,000 people not evacuated per day from across all of the different nations. So you, you, know, you have to make those very difficult decisions about, about do you save the many or do you save the few? And in that particular case, um, I decided that the many had to win. How did those women react? They were distraught. Uh, and, and completely understandably, and um, w were obviously begging me for help, um, you know, asking me how as a human being I could do that, as a woman, how could I do that, and so on and so forth. Actually, this is really helpful. You know, your uniform protects you from yeah. it being you. It's not me making that decision. It, it's, it's me as a representative, you know, it's the representative of His Majesty's government making that decision, and that really helps, um, and it, it is sort of like a barrier, and it does protect you but it still hurts. Anybody who watched a news bulletin during that period of time in the August of, of 2021 will be familiar with, with the chaos at the airport, with those images of people standing in the sewer, for example, with babies being handed over to, uh, to troops and, and just people utterly, utterly desperate. And then there was a terrorist attack. Yes. 
that must have been just diabolical. So it was expected. Um, we'd been, it had been intelligence for a number of days that something was coming. Um, it's a very porous camp. They were finding a lot of people who had broken onto camp as well. So it was expected, but that doesn't make it any easier. Again, I mean, you know, the, the Paris did just such an incredible job and, and how they did that, how the medics did what they did as well was absolutely incredible. For us, the main focus on that was, was injured people who were coming through. I had some team medics who are essentially just service, service police officers that have done a bit more medical training um, and a number of them you know, saved lives that day and, um, or, or attempted to save lives that, that day. But, um, and yeah, you know, it's, yes, it's not easy, but unfortunately it happened. And all we could do was make sure that our people that we had, you know, our passengers were safe and that we protected them. Um, the troops knew it was serious when I went and got my rifle because I normally just had a pistol. Suddenly I turned up with a rifle and they're like, oh, okay. She means it. Yeah, this is, yeah, we're, we're getting to that point, are we? But again, because we had been attacked sort of pretty, on and off throughout throughout the two weeks, so it was another attack. Unfortunately, it was it was yeah a very very lethal one. And who helps you and the people that you were with to put this afterwards into some kind of context and to get on with the rest of your lives? That's that's, that's a challenging one, isn't it? So um, again, our troops were really resilient. Um, slightly different as the boss because you you step back from your troops. They you know they don't need to see you know me having deep and meaningfuls. That's that's not how it works. So I've, I've had help from a number of sources. Uh, so I have a PTSD, PTSD stone that comes up in, in the third episode. Yeah. Uh, I also have a moral injury, uh, which is essentially where you do things that go so against your moral code that it starts, it, it undermines who you are as a person, basically. So um, the Padre system, which are chaplains, multi, you know, multi-faith chaplains, um, are, are responsible for looking at that and, and I've been supported through that and will continue to be supported through that by, by the chaplaincy. Uh, the PTSD, the, the military are really used to, you know, 20 years of war on terror has made them very good at dealing with it. And we have our own uh, community mental health teams and um, I've, I'm still again receiving sort of treatment through the community mental health teams. And my colleagues and my, my bosses have been absolutely fantastic at, and in fact, in the first instance, of just telling me, you're not okay and you need some help but then supporting me through that. Um, and then actually the RAF Benevolent Fund, which is a charity, has also provided um, some counselling for the moral injury as well. So it's not a one person solution. It, it's, there's lots and lots of different avenues. And to be honest, I've been really humbled by how many people have wanted to just put an arm around me and make sure I'm okay and support me through all this. Well, I, I don't think anyone can watch these programmes or listen to you speak and not feel that way and of course as you say it's not just you who features in the documentaries there's nurses doctors um paras there's the padre who i was really struck by as well as you mentioned i mean all of you um it actually humbles those of us who've never been in the forces and have never had to make these incredible decisions in a nanosecond do you take some comfort from knowing that most of us lack the courage genuinely lack any of the courage that would be required to be in that situation that you were in? I don't think people do actually. I think you'd be amazed what you can do and you have to. Um, and every single day I was there, well, certainly after about day two or three, it was like, I, I can't. You know, I used to have a little walk for about 20 minutes up to the Joint Task Force headquarters at six o'clock each morning, seven o'clock each morning for a briefing. And, and that was my, I can't do this time. And I just sort of walk up there on my own, didn't get a lift, always walked and 
and then again in the afternoon for another brief and that was my sort of time to just go all right part that you can do it but just sort of suck it up and, and there's an end date on it and and I think actually you know you can do it people just don't realize they can do it that was RAF squadron leader Diana Bird just talking there about everything she'd been through and not just her uh, in that incredible attempt to get those British passport holders out of Afghanistan I have to say the bit, the bit in the program where I think it was Diana herself actually who just said that some of the people they were rescuing had popped to Afghanistan for a holiday. Oh, I mean, I have to say, I, I will second for a wedding. For a wedding, um, um, and yeah, I, you just think, why when the country is falling? But I will second everything you said about the documentary. It's absolutely phenomenal, um, and there's so much in it that you just think, God, what a mess. Mm. Um, I mean, Diana, in your interview, mentioned the single women who were trying to yeah. get out of that country, and I also one of the things that struck me was one of the male army personnel talking about the mother with the four children mm. one of whom was undocumented yeah. and they had to get her to leave the queue take this child back to its parents and come back and they don't know if she ever made it back with her own three children but they couldn't um enable what no. might be seen as child trafficking child i just think no. as she said the decisions that 19 year old soldiers were being expected to make in those circumstances just horrifying and heartbreaking and in hardly any time in hardly they any had time. to sort of make eye contact with someone and think oh god yeah the family who were featured who mm. got out just because they'd seen one of the soldiers smoking and yeah when over waved their passport you and know said, got out he said yeah, off you go yeah. it's um it, the chaos, it, yeah. that's what comes through, is just the chaos. It's very frightening, actually, as I think about it. I'm, I'm shivering a bit because it's just one of those things where you think, well, what would I do? And we are just fortunate people who assume, and perhaps we're naive, that these sorts of challenges will never face us. I suppose you just don't know. Uh, but it's so, so worth your time. Uh, evacuation on all four. Um, Jane, thank you very much. Thank now, you for having me. Well, you're wearing another of your lovely dresses today. What's, which much. one is this? This is um, from Kate Hudson's very short-lived um, fashion brand. Oh, yeah, the actress. Um, the actress, yeah. yeah. It's made out of recycled plastic bottles, which makes it sound very sweaty. <laughs> but I'd like to say it's not sweaty at all. You don't look yeah. at all clammy. <laughs> and it's Thanks, really nice because That might be the nicest thing you've ever said to me. It's um, teal and... Is it teal, teal and mustard? And sort of mustard, oh, nice. yeah. Which also, I mean, it sort of looks a little bit like I'm wearing my granny's curtains. But you know, make it fashion. Yeah, I think your granny must have had lovely curtains. <laughs> uh, no, thank you very much. Have a lovely weekend. Thank you, and you. Uh, will you be getting up to any of your traditional fast living? I'm going to Amsterdam. You see, I thought so. Yeah, <laughs> I knew it. Right, just be as sensible as you can. Yes, yes, Jane. Have you got it? Yes, Jane. No vaping. Right, Fee's back on Monday. Have a lovely weekend. Thank you for listening. The email address is janeandfee at times.radio. We're bringing the shutters down on another episode of the internationally acclaimed podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. But don't forget that you can get another two hours of us every Monday to Thursday afternoon here on Times Radio. We start at 3pm and you can listen for free on your smart speaker. Just shout play Times Radio at it. Uh, you can also get us on DAB Radio in the car or on the Times Radio app 
whilst you're out and about being extremely busy. And you can follow all our tosh behind the mic and elsewhere on our Instagram account. Just go onto Insta and search for Jane and Fee and give us a follow. So in other words, we're everywhere, aren't we, Jane? Pretty much everywhere. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.